Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. Uh, fantastic show lined up for you, as always. Um, today, we are going to, we're going Pixar. Um, we're going to be talking to Sheila Omi. Sheila is one of the stars in the brand new animated feature film, Elemental, from Pixar. Um, gorgeous film. I saw it in the theater, and it's like just vibrant, as you would expect any uh, Pixar movie to be um, just gorgeous, gorgeous colors and animation and dimension, music, just very engaging and and you just want to wash yourself and and live deep in that world. Um, the story is um, very engaging. The acting in it throughout is is excellent. The uh, for kids, it's a story of um, it's a rom com, so it's a, a a love story. So you know, kids can appreciate that, um, and which is gets us into grooming because obviously, you know, it's like there there's a big thing about grooming for kids and and how you know anything mentioning LGBTQ is grooming kids. But I guarantee you, uh, parents having their kids watch this film, which you know, it's a very wholesome boy meets girl kind of love story, and they're having no problem with that. So, you know, it's like heterosexual grooming is fine. Gay grooming is not, um, apparently. But anyway, I <laughs> didn't mean to go down that rock hole. But anyway, the story is um, charming. The characters are charming. Um, the boy boy meets girl. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they have their challenges and, and they're very different. So it's opposite of tracks. And I think that's the story that a lot of the younger kids will take from the movie. For older adults or older people, um, it is kind of an allegory of, of culture clash. Um, the fire people represent immigrants and the water people represent, for lack of a better term, the white people or the people who have have held the status quo of the society for the longer period of time that see the immigrants as, you know, the outsiders coming in. And um, so there is that through line as well. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, <clears throat> Sheila herself plays um, the character Cinder Lumen. She's the mom of the the girl in the love story. Um, she her character is also the uh, resident matchmaker of Firetown, which is where the fire people live. And um, her character is kind of quirky and charming, um, but she is definitely the glue in the family. <clears throat> her husband is the uh, definitely the alpha of the family. Um, they're very powerful and um, taking over and with his vision of what, what should be happening. 
Um, the daughter is her own person trying to please her dad and their conflict and um, Cinder is definitely the person in the middle trying to create bridges and keep it all together. And we'll, we'll talk to her more about that. Um, Sheila also stars in Apple TV Plus's espionage thriller Tehran. And um, that is, again, she plays a woman of courage and, and complexity. Um, she's the wife of uh, one of the main characters who has a lot of drama, gets kidnapped. Um, Glenn Close plays her therapist although Glenn Close's role is a lot more complicated than that. Um, and, uh, you know, that is a sit-on-the-edge-of-your-seat thriller um, over there. So quite a diversity um, on the part of Sheila. Um, Sheila is, if you see pictures of her and see interviews of her, she is stunningly beautiful, um, even though her characters are much more Mother Courage um, and um, not afraid to get their hands dirty. Um, so excited to talk to her. She is sitting in the wings. First, we need to go to Brody Levesque. Brody is the editor of the L.A. Blade magazine um, and producer and co-host of the show, and he's got a few news stories for us today. So welcome to the show, Brody. Hey, Rob, and hi to all of our listeners. Um, I'm going to start off kind of uh, paralleling and, and complementing your uh, commentary on groomers. The Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is based in London and the U.K., it specializes in research and policy advice on hate, extremism, and disinformation, just released a report this week that showed that a loose coalition of extremists, conspiracy theorists, local actors and fringe political actors, uh, including the deputy chair of the Tory party, Lee Anderson, that's the conservatives who are currently in power in the UK, um, have apparently been doing close quarter coordination with the American counterparts, uh, Gays Against Groomers, Lives of TikTok, Matt Walsh, and a few of the others, and what this has done is this has contributed to a significant rise uh, in um, anti-LGBT slurs, hate speech. Uh, there's been framing of drag as a trans ideology. Performances as misogynistic. And then, of course, the entire concept of drag being satanic. <clears throat> it has become such a problem that now in the UK they're having the same kind of anti-drag protests uh, that we've seen uh, the Proud Boys, Moms for Liberty, Gays Against Groomers, and the other stage here in the United States. Uh, unsurprisingly, the ISD report says there's a direct correlation because the UK is not only taking a page out of the playbook, but they're communicating directly with the American right. Um, it should be noted that uh, this report uh, has been uh, talked about, thoroughly covered at length uh, by our colleagues in London at the UK's largest LGBTQ news outlet, Pink News UK. The title of the article is Tory Government and U.S. Conspiracy Theories to Blame for Anti-Drag Attacks in the UK. 
Um, I will be running an excerpt of it and a jump to at the Los Angeles Blade later today. But if our listeners would like to go uh, take a look at the complete total article for themselves, it was written by uh, Sophie Perry, who's one of the best writers over there at Pink News UK. And I, I heartily can, you know, ask you guys, go read it. And it's thepinknews.com, and that's Pink News UK. In America, um, we've had uh, a couple of very significant and good court rulings uh, for our transgender brothers and sisters. Um, I'll start in Florida. A U.S. Circuit Court judge struck down Florida's Medicaid trans health care ban. This was critical because, according to the plaintiff's attorneys, uh, including lead counsel and legal, there are over 9,000 Medicaid transgender uh, enrollees in the Florida program that are receiving gender-affirming care. Um, Had the court not struck this and permanently enjoined it, then transgender residents in the state of Florida using Medicaid including youth, for the gender-affirming health care would have lost it. Um, this injunction by U.S. District Court Judge Robert Hinkle in his 54-page order issued essentially said this, and I, I, I've got to give the judge a lot of credit for this one, and I'm quoting the judge from the order. For many years, Florida's Medicaid system paid for medically necessary treatments for gender dysphoria. The record is clear. Gender identity is real. The record does make this clear. Recently, for political reasons, this is the judge continuing, Florida adopted a rule and then a statute prohibiting payment for those treatments, including puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and then some surgeries. Uh, The judge is referring to uh, Senate Bill 254, which Governor DeSantis uh, ironically signed into full on May 17, which was a few days before the trial actually ended. So that was good news in Florida. That was one victory, um, which puts a lot of minds at ease there because it caused some problems. Um, the next court battle that really um, uh, everybody was kind of excited about was there had been a ban that had been signed into law against transgender youth uh, and receiving any kind of gender-affirming health care in the state of Arkansas. Um, we just got this week, again, a permanent injunction barring the state of Arkansas from enforcing that ban. So it essentially means that the state of Arkansas cannot deny transgender youth from receiving gender-affirming care. And this has become a critical issue. This court battle has been going on for a year, almost two, it had gotten so bad that there were actually families with transgender youth who moved physically out of the state of Arkansas. Uh, the law had some pretty onerous provisions in it, uh, including targeting medical providers. <clears throat> so, so while these Brody, I've got a question for you. Sure. I have a question for you on this. So in when Texas, when that bizarre judge um, ruled about the anti-abort or the abortion um, uh, pill that that uh, could be could be purchased and then essentially tried to make it illegal. Um, that was uh, a ruling that affected every state in the union. Why are these rulings not affecting other states other than the ones specifically 
that uh, obviously is being brought by one statute in one state. But why why are these not more universal rulings than than just the, the specific uh, law? That's a rather complicated um, answer. Uh, the best I can give you in the explanation of Shannon Minter, who's the director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, who is a party on other litigation, told me yesterday when I spoke with Shannon, because these are specific to state statutes and they address state statutes, they you don't have the ability to run the entire U.S. with it. Every court is addressing a specific state statute. Um, it will become more of a national issue once it gets into the appellate court system and SCOTUS gets it. Because at that point, you're starting to talk multiple states. But in this particular instance, because each decision is specific to a state, then it only applies to those states. And did Shannon give you any indication that should this reach SCOTUS, what um, he thinks the outcome there might be? Shannon says there's a question mark with that. Um, it, it's, first of all, a lot's going to depend on the circuit courts, the courts of appeals. Um, in Florida's case, that's the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit in Atlanta is a very, very conservative court. They've been known uh, to overturn rulings by lower court judges that run contrary uh, to uh, conservative values, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of it's going to be in the framing of the appeal from Florida to the 11th Circuit. That's going to be the first step of it. If it looks it's not going to go in the direction that the plaintiffs think it is, yes, they can fast-track it to SCOTUS. But normally SCOTUS isn't going to get involved unless there's conflicting Circuit Court of Appeal rulings. So it would take, in the next case, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which includes Arkansas, uh, would have to have a ruling conflict in that case with the similarities of the case in the Eleventh Circuit. Also, there is two other open cases right now. Uh, one is actually in the 11th Circuit, which is still a lower court uh, in Alabama. It's also a transgender youth health care ban. So a lot's going to ride on whether or not the circuit courts conflict directly with each other or if it becomes a fast track to SCOTUS. When it gets to SCOTUS, this is where nobody's exactly sure how they'll look at it. In some of the transgender cases that came before the court, they've already kicked it back. In other words, they refused to take the case, so the lower court ruling stood. In this particular instance, nobody's really sure. Right. Okay, great. And you have one more story? Uh, well, we and in a similar vein, we had another uh, case that has uh, – it's not a court case, but it's a situation on the ground in Tennessee. The Office of the Attorney General of Tennessee um, basically sent a legal request to Vanderbilt University requesting its medical records, these are the private medical records, of the transgender patients, both adult and juvenile, who were treated for gender dysphoria. Now, essentially, the excuse that the attorney general's office gave was that they were investigating fraud cases with TenCare, which is the Medicaid portion uh, for uh, Tennessee. And the problem is, from the attorneys that I've spoken to, 
is that in a case like this where an AD usually investigates, uh, it, it's not a wholesale gathering of all records. In other words, they just don't scrape up everything. They, they go after certain particular cases or cases that they've been alerted to, which may be maybe a dozen, maybe a couple dozen. In this particular case, since December, literally almost a 1,000 private medical records of trans adults and youth were turned over by Vanderbilt to the Tennessee AG. And that has created huge, huge fear uh, among the transgender folks, especially in the state of Tennessee, who were treated for gender dysphoria, particularly the kids. Um, I had had a conversation with Chris Sanders. Chris is the executive director of the Tennessee Equality uh, Project, which is the largest LGBTQ advocacy group in Tennessee. And he said he'd been talking to the parents of the trans kids, and he told me they're terrified. They don't know what's next. They don't know how this will be used. They don't know whether they're going to be targeted in some other way, and they feel like their privacy has been violated. Um, isn't that isn't I, that a complete violation of HIPAA? No, because under federal guidelines and federal rules and also under rules governing investigation, the Attorney General of Tennessee is legally entitled to this information, and Vanderbilt is legally required to turn it over. So this is what's got everybody upset. I had, I had had a conversation with Lance Preston, who's the founder and executive director of the Rainbow Youth Project, which is based in Indianapolis. Uh, Rainbow Youth uh, has a crisis um, hotline for LGBTQ youth. Lance told me that based on the data he got, when the news broke on this, which was on June 20th, a couple of days ago, between 10.45 in the morning and 9 o'clock that night, the crisis counselors responded to over 400 mental health crisis calls involving LGBTQ young people between the ages of 14 to 19, and about 98% of them were residents of Tennessee. Of those 400-plus calls, 100 of them got referred immediately because of uh, the hint of suicide problems. So there was a very much a real, very much a real, real world effect of the AG's action. Nobody really has a good explanation for this. Um, I have transgender activists telling me that they see this as little more than a fishing expedition by the AG, and that these people are making lists, and nothing good can come out of it. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that, Brody, and. Um, we're we're going to move on to Elemental, the world of Elemental. And by the way, Elemental has its own kind of um, LGBTQ controversy going on in a way that it shouldn't be, uh, but it does have a character. It's not a major character. It's not a major even plot point in the story, but one of the characters, um, the sister of the 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 boy in the love story is portrayed as a non-binary character named Lake. And the, um, the actor who portrays Lake did a tweet out, um, you know, declaring, guess what? I get to voice the first non-binary character ever in a Pixar film. Um, ironically, there is a uh, satirical show out um, that makes fun of Disney, and in that show... Um, they have a 
scene where two Disney, quote-unquote, Disney executives are talking about the first gay character in a an animated film called, I think it's called Gloop or whatever, um, who's supposed to be gay, and they depict Gloop in bed with another um, blob of goo, and that's how they're depicting that homosexuality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a lot of people on Twitter made a big deal about this whole thing. Um, it is, um, first of all, it's ridiculous because, I, and I think the really offensive thing for me is the character in Elemental is not sexualized at all. It has nothing to do with sexuality. It is just simply another introduction of diversity in a diverse world. Um, very sweet, very innocent, and you know all the the crap about it on Twitter is completely unwarranted. Um, but with that, um, I do want to welcome to the show uh, one of the bright, shining stars of Elemental um, and a, a wonderful actress, uh, Sheila Omi. Sheila, welcome. Hello, Rob, and the warmest greetings to my LGBTQ family. Oh, thank you so much. You're it's it's amazing to me in the parts that you play that you're you bring such depth to them and i don't think it's a coincidence because i think there's something that comes up from your history and that history is that in um 1979 there was a um a revolution in iran where you were living at the time and your family basically fleed there from there um, to America and have that as, as kind of your origin. Can you talk to us about what that experience was like as a young person and how did that influence you and your theatrical expressions as an adult? It was one of the worst of, uh, decades of my life. Um, we happened to be completely by accident and the grace of God or whatever it is you believe in, that we happened to be in Los Angeles visiting my sister Shiva. I'm wow. actually sitting in the same house that we came in when we uh, first got here. And, um, for, you know, and suddenly the revolution started and my father, who was a philanthropist and such a uh, giving human being. He was a capitalist, but in his heart, he was a pure socialist. Um, that any any time he he had a, a company, a construction company, and any time anything happened to the employees, they are getting help to this day. They as well as their families. It was written in his will that they should. Anyway, he was, many years before I was born, he was a colonel of the Shah's army, so he was a military man, and because of the fact that we are not Muslim, uh, they put my dad on an execution list, and we happened to be here in Los Angeles, and we could never go back again. Um, uh, When we came to L.A., we didn't bring anything with us, so it's one of those riches to rags story overnight, and... uh, you know, by the time I was born, my, my father had become very wealthy. I'm working really, really hard his entire life. But we lost everything, absolutely everything. And the next few years, uh, 
my mom was going through menopause and so much depression. Every day we were getting news from home that another one of my father's precious friends, um, male or female, had been tortured and executed. Um, at the age of 10, I opened up a book. I'm so sorry. I'm, 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 I'm getting really uh, uh, depressing here. <laughs> we're talking no, about you're not. You're, animation you're, stories. It's, it's, no, but please go real. on because it's, it's, yeah, it's real. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, we, we would get just horrible news day after day. And um, so my mom moved us back and forth from Studio City to Van Nuys. And uh, the next five years of my life, it was like one year I'm in one high school, another year in another, not high school, uh, elementary school, another elementary school, and, uh, uh, you know, going back and forth from Studio City to Van Nuys for middle school. And then when I suddenly landed in Van Nuys, I went to Van Nuys High School, and this was um, what changed my life, was that Van Nuys High School is a performing arts magnet, and this is when I met my very first um, uh, just incredible actors, my very first LGBTQ friends. Um, it, it was also a, a, a school that had busing, so they would bus in people of different backgrounds and people from, you know, the um, middle cities and African-Americans. So it was an incredibly diverse community in which I discovered theater. And um, I never imagined I'd ever be doing film or television because back then, this was the 1980s, and, you know, all we had on television was Molly Ringwald and Phoebe Cates and just, you know, about a dozen uh, characters. None of them were Iranian. So there was absolutely right. no representation. So I never even had the audacity to imagine I'd ever become a film actor. But I loved theater. And being a child of immigrants, um, uh, and an immigrant myself, of course, but uh, I was so keenly aware, as is the character of Ember in Elemental, so keenly aware of the sacrifices that my uh, family made for me to be here, for me to have a better life. So I, it was so important for me to make my father proud. So I went to UCLA, tried to go to medical school. I have huge ADHD and a learning disability. So a four-year science degree in biological anthropology took me six years to finish. And when I got my uh, Bachelor of Science my dad passed away, and at the same time, I was hired to do a play for the Iranians in diaspora, and so my dream of being in theater in high school came true, and for the next uh, couple decades, I started acting in plays for uh, Iranians in exile. Of course, we could never go back, but right. and right. here I am. It, yeah, and I, the... The experience you went through, is, it mm -hmm. kind of comes through in your work. I mean, you have such depth, you know, of, of each part you play, even in elementary. And I don't mean to minimize that, but, you know, you are, you're working basically only with your voice. I mean, obviously, they, mm -hmm. they, they paint a beautiful character depiction on top of your voice and all of that. But even with that, you know, that, the depth of your experience comes through that. Um, I think I've heard you say in the past that theater is the 
the acting platform that you like the most? What what um, what depth do you feel you get out of acting in theater versus film, television, and voiceover? What what does what does theater bring that the others don't quite as much? Um, of course, I always feel alive when I'm doing my art, but there is a level of aliveness that live theater has that all the other arts are missing. And it is that at the same moment that you are experiencing your work, you are breathing the same air that the audience is breathing and that anything could happen. Anything could happen, and, and um, there's an excitement to that. Um, and really, theater is how I learned to act, and it's where I got my um, uh, work ethic, because to this day, whatever I get, whether it's wor- voiceover work or especially film or television, I work on it uh, just a, a crazy amount of preparation, as I would uh, as if I'm going on stage and, and, I, and, and there's no net to catch me if I fall. Yeah, it, I relate to that so much. I was a theater major at UCLA and in theater, <sighs> and I, that, that spirit of the theater, it, it's unlike anything. I mean, unless you've been in it, it, I don't know that anybody would understand it, but it is. It's, you're, you're in character and you're... I love what you just said about breathing the same air, you know, in your character as the audience is taking it in. I mean, I think that that defines it so well. When when you first got the script of Elemental, because there's so many of these themes are really through weaved through Elemental. Did you did you almost explode that this is, you know, even though it's in a whole other world and all these other things are on top of it, but this is, this is me. Did, did, did it have that impact on you? Oh my God, Rob, I was just so amazed that this was happening to me. Um, the thing is that I never had a chance to read the entire script. I got a call from the, the Pixar uh, production and they set up a zoom meeting with me and the uh, Peter Son, the director, and he's, he's, the creator of this show. And I was so honored and just melted when I found out that Peter wanted me to play the character of Cinder because um, he said that he had, he had um, uh, worked with some a, a number of great actresses and voiceover artists, but that he was looking for a specific quality in the voice of Cinder because Cinder is actually based on Peter Song's Korean mother who had passed away a couple of years earlier. So this was so important to me to do a great job to honor Peter for, uh, you know, for going with me as well as to, I always, I I don't think that somehow I felt like the spirit of Peter's mom is looking down at me. And so it was really important for me to do a great job. But I was so honored. Rob, I, oh yeah, I, I, yeah. I, that, I never even yeah. What a challenge! I mean, yeah. to to start work and go. Oh, by the way, you're playing my mom who passed away a few years mom. ago, and, yeah. and go for it, go for it. Get no pressure. Good luck. <laughs> no pressure. Wow. Yeah. Um, 
did he sh- what stories did he share about his mom with you or did he he did um he he shared stories about how and and this was so um it resonated with me so much that he he his mom didn't want, would really get angry when he would be drawing and um because you know as as immigrants they've made all these sacrifices to give their children a better life and like the worst thing that could happen is for your child to uh become anything other than a lawyer doctor engineer or something that's going to give you financial stability right so you know it it wasn't in her mom's world that that you could be drawing and uh so so she really felt like that was a waste of time for him and that he's um he's avoiding doing his his work and um and i think it was years later that he found out that his mom was actually a an artist herself that wasn't allowed to express her art so she was only mm-hmm. doing the best that she could and 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 also some really funny stories about when you know his his mom met uh peter's uh american white wife and um Really cute that he says that you know his his grandmother. He says literally the dying words of his grandmother was "Mary Korean," and she died. And <laughs> that scene is in the that scene is in the movie where Cinder says to Ember that Oh Ember, uh, your finding match was my mother's dying wish. And then you cut to the grandmother saying "Mary Fire." <laughs> <laughs> That that is actually amazing. <laughs> that that because uh, I totally re- that that was a standout moment in the film. Definitely remember that. Um, and it, it's it's really fascinating because there's so many there. Obviously, in the script, you know, a lot of that is represented. Uh, Cinder Lumen has a very unique gift um, that she is using in the film. It's sort of underplayed, which. You know her detection of love. You know, with with the other characters, she can detect when people are falling in love, and you know her her matchmaking ability. Um, you you presented her and represented her in such a loving fashion. Um, what what do you see as her her backstory? What did you use to help you create her character? Besides the fact that you knew she was based on his mom. You know, it, it, I really feel like this is the first time in my life that I'm playing a character that is so much like me. So for me, she was me. I I, I am a uh, uh, I'm a diehard and horrible matchmaker, and I don't stop. My friends hate me for it, and I can't <laughs> stop. It's an obsession. I feel like, oh my God, if I love these people individually, why can't they love each other and make love? Go. (laughs) It just has never worked. But really, she was me. She was me, except you know, for the Fireish language. The um, we had the same linguist who created the language for Game of Thrones. Create the language for Elemental, and so Peter and I collaborated on um, the idea that if these characters speak, if this is the language they grew up speaking, how does the architecture of their mouths make them sound when they? English. So, you know, so that was something to what could we do with the consonants and do we make them pop and the cuz and the cuz and the, you know, and 
So it was really, it, it was really a lot of fun to do. I don't, I, I can't, I don't even have the audacity to say that this was a dream come true because I never even dreamed of such a, um, such an honor would fall into my lap. I, I have to pinch myself every day. Well, it seems like it was bequeathed to you because of all the talents out there. You were the one that could handle it and you could project it in the most appropriate way. Um, you know, because so much of the depth of the themes that are in this film, um, I don't know that they could have been put in somebody else's hands. So I think they were lucky to get you. Um, you know, it, although I think your humility is is certainly admirable, but um, I, I think you you were you were meant to be Cinder Lumen. Um, one of the things that does come through in the film, and it is interesting um, that you know Peter's experience is definitely weaved into this and is very real, um, is there the fire aspect of the characters is really depicts an anger um, on mm-hmm. the part of immigrants. Um, what, right. what did you relate to with that, that anger, and what, what would you want people to know about it? Completely. There, there is an anger. I mean, there's, there's, anger is part of the human experience, but uh, definitely I have had to deal with my own rage growing up because – um, you know, as, as Ember did in, in the story, I, I so related to Ember on a lot of, uh, on a lot of um, levels. One of those levels was, was her anger. Um, and, and you see in the movie that, you know, where is this anger coming from? It's, it's that she, uh, her dad, who means the world to her, is being treated, marginalized, and, and, and being treated like a uh, lower class human, you know, being and um that creates it um it starts burning some embers in your heart as a child and so certainly my uh unexpressed rage was something that i uh, have had to deal with growing up but also with ember the um you know that thing we talked about that keen awareness that she has that of the sacrifice that her parents made for her to have a better life. So what that causes is a guilt and a burden on her shoulders Mm -hmm. that I know I have felt, and I don't know of any friends of mine that are immigrants that don't have that same guilt and burden, that it makes us want to be the very best to not just make our parents proud, but to make everyone in our host country proud. And, you know, and we become huge people pleasers. And of course, I'm generalizing. I can only tell you about my own experience, but definitely um, when I saw Ember on the screen, moments I I cried. It's such a touching, um, real story, you know, that is visually stunning as it is. Yeah. I I think it, um, in many ways, the subtext of elemental, which is, you know, speaking to an elemental on another level, it, it really is speaking mm-hmm. to some of the elemental aspects of our own world. I mean, which is, mm-hmm. you know, you know, pe- people coming together from a different background, et cetera. Um, and I have to say, 
there were aspects of it that, and not to to get all quote unquote woke about it, mm-hmm. but I do think some of the the depiction of the water people has some reflection for white people to think about because in mm-hmm. certain ways, and, and I may be overthinking this, but the the fact that water in it is kind of you know this inadvertently throwing itself on other people and dousing their flames, you know, and kind of overrunning <laughs> them with with white culture, for example, mm-hmm. to the point that mm-hmm. there was a, a place in the movie where one of the um, – Amber goes to the family dinner, and one of the uh, people goes, oh, you speak really well. And she's like, yeah, I'm just right. using a language I used my whole life, but okay. Right. Yeah, I speak really right. well. You know, which yeah. is, you know, it is sort of a classic, you know, white faux pas. Um, what, yeah. what, what do you hope white people take from, from this? White people um, overthink I, it I like I do. <laughs> white people overthink it like I do. But there is also some preciousness to white people that it also brings up. And that, that beauty, like one of my favorite characters is Wade. Uh, first of all, Wade himself, who sees the good in everyone and, and you know, wants to bring people together, and his mom, who um, really respects art and that, you know, that, that her respect for art and beauty trumps her, um, let's say, ignorance of uh, people of different uh, elements or, or elements of different elements. Um, but I really hope that everyone, and not just white people, everyone takes away from this, that the more that we embrace people who are different than us, whatever that difference is, whether it's a political difference, whether it's a um, it's religious, in any way, differences that when you open your heart to other people, as opposed to shutting them off and saying, oh, these idiots, they are the other, they are wrong but you turn your heart to them and you open your heart to them and you open your eyes to them, that you are going to learn so much about yourself as a human being, that there's an alchemy that literally happens and makes both parties better, more sophisticated, and more aware of who they are deep inside. Because there's something, you know, in in UCLA, I studied biological anthropology, and I can tell you that there is absolutely no such thing as race. And I, by the way, I could talk your head off, which we won't hear, but mm. um, there's just so much. There's just so much. But as far as race, there's no such thing as race. There's just people of different physical traits, right, different genetic traits. And, but if you take, let's say, two people in one country that almost look the same, they, they could even be um, related, they could even be identical twins, that the um, similarities that these two people have is far, far less that, I'm sorry, the, the differences that they have. They're so much more similar to people that are completely different and of a different quote-unquote race and gender and um, uh, sexual orientation. We just have so many more similarities among us. And so, you know, one of the things we're supposed to do on this earth is to know ourselves and to enjoy. And it's in embracing our differences that you learn more about yourself. 
Absolutely. I it, yeah. I love everything you just said, and and I could sit and talk to you for hours on just that alone because I've been in in discussions for many many years, especially you know it's not come up so much recently, but back ten years ago, fifteen years ago, one of the big arguments against gay people was. For, and I, I don't know why anybody was even arguing this, but it's like they, mm. they were in search of the gay gene. What was the gene mm. that made you gay? Mm. And that the point you just made was one that I, that enters a lot of those discussions on my part was there is no race gene. You know, it's like mm-hmm. people are what they are. You know, we get mm-hmm. created very uniquely and we have these traits and I, mm-hmm. I, I love it. There, you know, there are parts of us that are, incredibly similar yet mm-hmm. we are all down to a person so unique that we have individual fingerprints we have individual dna mm-hmm. mappings unlike anybody mm-hmm. else so we we both get to own our uniqueness and our similarities and mm-hmm. you know um the bond obviously comes from our similarities that that we can find mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. it's like just you know right right on um, since the movie came mm-hmm. out, there's been a lot of the discussion around the one character who is on screen for a nanosecond, um, which is the Lake character who is non-binary. Mm-hmm. Non-binary, what, what right? Heard, or, yeah. What have you heard about that? And what what is your reaction to that whole um, who, <laughs> Um, discussion around, around it. So, so here's the thing. I, I, so today, from what I heard um, you speaking with Brody, this was the first that I heard that there was a negative reaction uh, about it. I loved that this character was being shown because, you know, here this story is a it's, – it's Peter Stone's personal – you know, it's based on his personal experience – and of, of just being an immigrant and, or being the child of immigrants and, and uh, falling in love with someone who they didn't approve of. And, um, and it just made me so happy to see the character of Lake because I thought, yes, representation, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, so I, I wasn't aware that there was anything negative about it. And I'm sorry for my ignorance. Well, no, no, your ignorance of ignorance. <laughs> it's like right. because the reaction, the the reaction is ignorant. It is, I mean, mm. on so many levels. Mm. It just, um, you know, it it's it's infuriating for a lot of reasons. One, uh, because I think what you're describing is beautiful and is is perfect. And you know, it's and quite frankly, uh, you know, for my kids, my kids are now twenty, so they're a little older than the high school age and the the young adolescent age. But um, a lot of younger people are, you know, questioning, you know, the binary of gender and mm-hmm. and identifying mm-hmm. as non-binary. And so um, that representation, just even for a minute on the screen, I think is is good, affirming, and, and helpful for them. It's not mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. anybody else into it. It's simply... Mm-hmm recognizing what is um the the fact that anybody is taking issue with it is it's like give me a break it's 
mean, the movie is, you know, it's like, I don't know, 90 minutes long, or I, I, I don't have the exact time in front of me, and you're talking mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, 30 seconds in the whole movie right. that that you're having right. an issue with. So, yeah, yeah it's yeah. Pretty, pretty wild. Um, and, and, and my God, the, go oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. No, I'm go just ahead. going to talk about the incredible technological feat that this film is, that, you know, to, to how the fire characters, this is not like a match on fire. These are fire beings. They are constantly not just moving, but emitting light. And it was just such a beautiful, stunning film for me to watch on the big screen. I'll be honest with you. I can't stand the sound of my voice. So I apologize oh, no. to your listeners in advance. Absolutely. Oh, my God. So other than my own voice, I was just mesmerized by the voices of all the characters. And the music really stuck around going on a beautiful sound meditation journey, except that my eyes were open and I'm looking at this beautiful, stunning, uh, I mean, it was, it was really masterful. It was really masterful. Oh, my God. Well, I love your voice. Your voice is rich <laughs> and deep. And, you know, it's oh. like, I, in fact, I was like thinking about your voice in terms of what you depicted in the film as so motherly and everything else. But mm. it's also, you have a very sensual, you know, it's like, I can't wait to see you play a really elegant part where you get to be elegant and sensual and and use your voice in a in a sexy way because I think you it, it would fit perfectly. Um, Thank you. I did want to ask you about process because that's one part mm-hmm. that people don't see when they see a movie like this is what goes into it. Because mm-hmm. I, I do know mm-hmm. that you guys don't get to act with each other. You are acting basically by yourselves. Is there ever a point where the cast all comes together, or do you never, ever see each other? I've never, ever seen any of the other cast except for the premiere in uh, the U.K. I met uh, Mama Duate and uh, beautiful and incredible Leah Lewis. Oh, my God, this this woman is just a powerhouse, Um, triple threat. I mean, and this really speaks to the incredible mastery as a director of Peter Son, who was able to have us go in individually. Now, I know that the, uh, I'm having some footage that my Mamadou and Leah, who play Wade and Ember, did go into the booth together. I don't know how many times they did that, but for the most part, we all uh, voiced individually, and Peter Son would orchestrate it and uh, direct it to make it feel as if we're actually talking to each other. Well, that's, yeah, that it's an it's an incredible feat when you see this come together with all the different artisans of all different disciplines and their work mm. coming yeah you know, coming to fruition in front of you that way. Yeah, and that's why it sometimes breaks my heart when, just like you said, over like a fifteen second thing that someone doesn't like, all of this mastery and work just gets. Um, stunned, you know. Yeah. I mean, not that not I, that it's the the truth, but it just, yeah. Yeah. It's no. It's well. I I hope the film overrides it. And if anybody sees the film, um, you know, it's oh. like it it has has such a huge impact. I don't think they'll give that a second thought um, after. Yeah. And I do hope that that discussion does not dissuade people 
from seeing the film because oh, I think it's absolutely. I think it's important and it it really is um, a film that you know if my boys were younger and we saw the film I would definitely want to use it as a great discussion tool you know for them mm-hmm. I, I think a class should see this and talk about the you know it, it gives a safe space to talk about immigrants and coming in and and the diversity mm-hmm. of of society and, and you know mm-hmm. bringing different aspects because I mean even even ironically it even gets into food culture where you know the the fire and hot spicy element of mm-hmm. food is brought in you know to mm-hmm. to the film and introduced so you know it's it, it's really outstanding um, I do want to move pivot a little bit to your career what what else is going on for you you um, you've been working in Tehran, the the the, mm-hmm. the series Tehran, um, and uh, filming scenes with Glenn Close. Um, what what is happening on on that platform? So Tehran, uh, we finished filming season three of Tehran, and uh, so season three is going to be. I don't have a date, unfortunately, but it is thrilling. So those. Uh, friends who've been watching the show, it's been, it's on Apple TV. It is one of it's an espionage thriller, and every scene by scene there is a twist, and it's a it's a white knuckle uh, type of show to sit and watch if if you have the heart for it, you'd really enjoy it. And uh, so season three is coming out, and this season we've got Hugh Laurie joining the cast, and oh, he wow. is just. So lovely. Oh, those beautiful blue eyes. I could just swim. And he's just such a kind human being. And uh, he, you know, the, the, the entire crew is melts when they talk about him. He's such a lovely, lovely human being. And, uh, but other than that, I, I'm sitting and waiting for, you know, the writer's strike that's going on. And we're just sitting and hoping and fingers crossed that they get what they need. I absolutely support any artist who uh, is asking to get compensated for their work, and especially writers. We would have nothing about writers um, as far as stories. Well, as and a writer, AI I, is appreciate, not the same I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. And now you, you made... You made your own film. Um, what What is the status on your film? So uh, that is on YouTube. It's called Wake Up Sleeping Beauty. And it's a film in Persian with English subtitles. It was written by my dear friend Mastan and Moradam, who is a therapist. And it was commissioned by the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. Back in 2020, it was supposed to be a play that Mastan wrote. And uh, it's about the immigrant story. It's about the Persian immigrant story, the Iranians who um, immigrate here to the U.S., and there's so many of us. And uh, the, so much like Emma, and there were so many connections between Elemental for me in that film, um, that, you know, the, the pressure that's on us, um, the children of immigrants, and how it really puts a damper on us living our lives, the guilt that we feel. Um, for the horrible things that our family's gone through and the the sacrifices they've made for us to be here. But what was special about that film, and I really hope people 
find it on YouTube and watch it um, because it really opens your eyes to Iranians and Iranian issues and Iranian immigrants. But it was all filmed, like, uh, you know how you were talking about the, with Elemental, we came into the studio individually. None of these actors have met each other to this day. We, I turned wow. my living room into a green screen studio because the Department of Mental Health had said that, no, I'm sorry, we, it can't be a play, COVID's here. And when I asked if I could do it into a, turn it into a film, they said no. They said that um, only if none of the actors could ever be in the same room together could you make it a film. And so my um, partner, my creative partner, is this brilliant uh, filmmaker called Hitoshi Inoue, and uh, he and I, we turned it into a film. Everyone came in on green screen individually on a different day. We gave eye lines. I directed them. Hitoshi filmed it. And we put the, a backdrop. And you'd never, ever guess that these characters aren't actually sitting in a living room together and talking. And um, That is amazing. And, and the name of the film, again, for people who look on YouTube? Called, thank you. It's called Wake Up Sleeping Beauty. And it's about waking up from our trappings. And again, I'll tell you, you might not be Iranian. You might not be an Iranian woman. And, and there's a lot of LGBTQ, because um, uh, we are the Mastan and ally. We are all allies. And so it's really important for us to uh, bring up LGBTQ issues for uh, the uh, conservative Iranian-American public, you know, so that um, Absolutely. we make so the world better wake up, for all. Wake up. Right, Wake Up Sleeping Beauty on YouTube. Check that out. Mm -hmm. Check out Tehran on Apple Plus TV. And go to the theaters and see the film Elemental. Um, Sheila, glorious talking to you today. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much for joining us. Thank you, more importantly, for being you and your artistic contribution to the world. Um, You know, your, your work is stellar. And I can't wait to see what comes next for you. And, yes, we we need the writer's strike to be over soon. Um, But we are out of time today. And um, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Uh, Please do subscribe. You can listen to us on wherever you find your your podcast, Apple, um, Google, all of of the main platforms, iHeart. We are on all of them. And um, also read the Los Angeles Blade um, it is one of the finest. In fact, it just got the award from GLAAD for, for excellence in journalism. And nice. you can find that at losangelesblade.com. Uh, for those of us rated LGBT radio, we will be back again next week. We will talk to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.